Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Alice, and I am your hostess and the creator of the Survivor Girl podcast. This podcast is going to bring on survivors and thrivers of terminal illnesses. And over the weeks and months, I hope to bring you tremendous and amazing stories of people who have faced their own mortality and lived to tell the tales and their amazing lives past their diagnosis. This first podcast is going to be a little different because this is going to be me telling my story first because of course I am a survivor as well which is what possessed me to go ahead and start a podcast. So like I said my name is Alice. I was born and raised in Washington DC where I've lived most of my life and in 2011 I was diagnosed with triple negative invasive ductal carcinoma between stage two and three of the right breast. This was a very traumatic experience for me obviously finding this out at the time I was 37 years old meaning it wasn't something that was expected. I did not have a family history of breast cancer so this is really just came out of left field. When people ask me well, how long did you have cancer? That's kind of a hard question to answer. I will tell you that I started noticing pain the previous year in 2010. In the summer of 2010, I started having this pinching sensation inside of my right breast. I had never had a mammogram or anything of that nature, but this pinching sensation was excruciating and it was all the time, constant pain all the time, no matter where I was, no matter how many pain pills I took, there was just this constant sensation in my breast. And after a while, that sensation went away and what replaced it was a small squishy ball inside of my breast. At first when it appeared, I was like, okay, well, I'm over 35 now, breast tissue starts to break down. Maybe it's just as simple as that. It's not anything I need to worry about, but let me monitor it just to be on the safe side because I don't know for sure. Over the next several months, I noticed that it began to grow in size. When I first noticed it, it was maybe the size of like a pea, maybe a little bit bigger than that. And by the time I finally went to see a doctor, it was closer to the size of a golf ball. And now I'm concerned. So I made an appointment to see my OBGYN and during the exam, they do a breast exam. And when she was feeling along my breast and she felt that little squishy ball, she was like, this is not normal. This is not normal breast tissue breaking down. This is something that you need to have a mammogram for. I never had a mammogram at that point. Most women do not start getting mammograms until the age of 40. And at that time, like I said, I was 37. So she wrote me a referral to go and get the mammogram done. I go and I get the mammogram. And during the process, something apparently showed up. They didn't tell me. They were like, we're going to have to take you to another room and you're going to have to have an ultrasound. So they proceeded to take me down the hall and I get an ultrasound done. And that's the first time that I see this black mass show up on the screen. And this thing frightened me. I didn't know what it was but I knew whatever it was, it wasn't good. I remember asking the radiologist, you know, is this is this something I should be worried about? And he was like, that's not something I can discuss. I'll send the information to your doctor. So the next week I get a call from my doctor and she tells me that I need to have a biopsy done. That whatever this thing is, they are genuinely concerned that this isn't just some cyst or something to that effect. It needs to have a biopsy. So I make an appointment to have a biopsy done at a local hospital. And I remember now it is now months have passed and it's now closer to Christmas. And I remember they told me that I would get my results back right after Christmas. And so I, you know, enjoyed my Christmas, but I was still in 
in the back of my head concerned, obviously. And then on January 4th, 2011, I went to the doctors to get the results of my biopsy. And that's when I was informed that I had cancer. And it is very life-changing to hear those words. The first second I felt terror and first I believe I was more numb than anything. You go into shock. It was, I, I can't believe what she just said. Is, did she just tell me that I have cancer? And she informed me that I needed to get dressed and that she was gonna have me go to the counseling room and they were gonna call a social worker up to come sit with me as they explained to me what my options were. And so I remember getting dressed and going into the counseling room and the social worker comes in and my doctor sits across from me and she explains to me and you know, what triple negative and invasive ductal carcinoma and things of that nature. And I'm hearing her and I'm not hearing her at the same time. And suddenly she says the words mastectomy. And it hit me that she was telling me that I had cancer. Right up until that minute, it did not hit me that she was telling me that I was going to lose my breast or I was going to lose my life. And suddenly it hit me what the word, the word she was saying to me. And I just remember I burst into tears. I'm like, I'm 37, I'm single, I have no kids and you're trying to take off my breast. You know, it, it's very traumatic for anyone, but it's very traumatic for a woman because that's part of your identity is, you know, obviously your breast, your, your, your features as a woman. And so to be told that you're going to lose one was, devastating to me. And I just kept bawling, crying. And then I asked her, were there any other options? Was there any other way? And she said, well, Miss Mitchell, we can go in reverse order. We can start with your chemotherapy. And that way we hope to try and reduce the size of the tumor and then have a lumpectomy and then go through radiation treatment. There's no guarantee that the tumor will reduce, but if we can reduce the tumor, that probably would be the better option because you're still gonna have to go through chemo either way because of the size of this mass. As it stood at the time, I was gonna lose my entire right breast. If I tried to reduce the tumor, they could go from a mastectomy to a lumpectomy. And I said, that's what I wanted to do. And so she sent me upstairs to meet with an oncologist. And I remember meeting my oncologist, Dr. Ima Tabara at George Washington Hospital and very nice doctor, but them telling me the process of having to go through chemo and it was set me up with four originally with two additional ones if necessary after the lumpectomy. It was a lot to take in. It was a lot to process. I had to call my office and let them know that I wasn't going to come back to work that day because I had just figured I'd go and find out these results and it was no big deal and I was go right back to work. But that wasn't going to happen. They told me before I could start chemotherapy that I would have to run a battery of tests, PET scans and CT scans and lots of blood tests, things of that nature, which takes weeks. I asked them how long before I would start chemotherapy. They gave me nine days. And I asked them, could I have more time? Because again, I'm 37 and I hadn't had children and I wanted the opportunity, you know, would, would I have time to freeze my eggs? Do we have that kind of time? And they told me as advanced and as quickly as your cancer is growing, we don't have time. We need to start immediately. And so if you do this, understand that we don't, we don't have time to wait. You will likely lose your ability 
to ever have children because unfortunately one of the cells that are are destroyed in the process of chemotherapy are eggs and so that was a very devastating thing to have to hear that I was going to lose my ability to ever have children but it was the choice between my life or the life of a child that I may never have or even if I had I wouldn't live long enough to see so obviously in that circumstance you really don't have a choice you really have to start immediately in the interim it was having to contact family and having to contact my friends and contact my job trying to arrange things because I was going to have to miss a lot of time obviously going through treatment and that was some very hard conversations that I had to have and I apologize if I get emotional it's still a very emotional thing for me to talk about the process of my treatment like I said it, I was given nine days leading up to your treatment you go through just so many tests MRI I had two of those they thought they found something so I had to have a second one and then biopsies on everything and then like I said CAT scans CT scans numerous blood tests more than I could count and then they also needed to install a port in my chest I would go into my left breast with the line that fed into my jugular in order to feed me the chemo drugs just makes it easier because as you go continue through treatment your veins start to collapse and they're no longer able to keep putting lines into your arms so it's best just to have a port that's put into your in this case in my, in my case because it was breast cancer they were treating it was put into my left breast to treat my right breast even that little procedure it's about the size of a quarter. Even having that procedure is kind of traumatic to go through. Obviously, they got to cut you open and put it just below the skin. And that was all prior to my first treatment. And as I said, my first treatment was only nine days later, meaning I had just over a week to get all of these things done. And then going for my first chemo treatment on a Thursday morning at eight o'clock in the morning, you have to be there. And chemo is a really, really horrific experience. As you can imagine, you go in at eight in the morning, they run blood tests on you to make sure your white blood cells are fine. And of course, obviously going through your first treatment, that's not an issue. But as time continues, it's a thing that they constantly keep having to test because you come in with low white blood cell count, they will not be able to treat you that day. Fortunately for me, I did never had that issue, but it is something that I watch other patients going through. Now, the infusion room is, it's not the best place to be. It is a very uncomfortable place. Not that they put you in a recliner, your first treatment, actually, they put you in a, in a room by yourself and, and you sit on a hospital bed and they and you're, the infusion is four and a half hours of chemo drugs. After that, you'll be placed in a recliner. There is no noise in these rooms at this time. It may have changed since then. This was in 2011. As I said, there was no TV in the room. There was no radio playing. The only sound was the sound of the machines beeping, letting you know when it was time to change out the chemo drugs. And so as you can imagine, the room was filled all the way around with the nurse in the center and all of the chairs are around that center area and you just sit there for four and a half hours being fed drugs that are basically poisoning you and the type of chemotherapy that I had was called ACT chemo which is called the red devil chemo because of one of the drugs actually makes you pee red I, I hate to be that graphic but yes it makes you pee red and it is one of the it's one of the hardest on the body of all the chemo drugs and it does really really horrific and horrible things to you physically which of course starts to affect you mentally and emotionally i 
had my first chemo treatment. I remember getting extremely nauseous. Even though they feed you anti-nausea drugs before they start the actual chemo drugs and saline, you do still get sick. There's nothing that can be done about that. They put you on nine different types of medication for pain and for the nausea to try and help you get deal with it and get through it. They only help somewhat. So I had my first chemo treatment. I went home and at this time they didn't have the new last shot you had to go back for. They didn't have auto injectors at that time in 2011. Nowadays, fortunately, you have the audio injectors. You don't have to go back to the hospital. Back then you had to get up on the next morning at 8 a.m. again. For my case, it was a Friday morning and go in and have the new last shot. You get home from the new last shot and within, let's say, 12 to 15 hours after the shot, you are in excruciating pain. Nulasta is a medication that helps your body regenerate white blood cells, which helps you fight off infection while you're going through chemotherapy treating. Because keep in mind, the chemo is pretty much killing off all the cells in your body. And so this is trying to help your body regenerate white blood cells so you can fight off infections and stay healthy as you're battling basically for your life. So you take the medication, you get the Nulasta shot, but the trade-off is, is that it causes excruciating pain in your bones, in particular in your lower back, because it's from the bone marrow where your white blood cells are coming from. So for me, it meant excruciating pain in my back and in my chest where I could not sleep at night. Like I usually stay curled up in the fetal position because I couldn't move and I was in so much pain and I was very nauseous and sick. I did lose my hair. I lost my hair maybe about a week or maybe closer to two weeks after my first chemo treatment. I didn't even, a lot of people tend to make it through their second. I did not. I lost my hair after my first one about two weeks after and it just comes out in handfuls. It actually feels like, like your hair is hurting your head and your hair starts falling out in handfuls in your hand. And again, it's another thing for women that is very traumatic. Now, I had cut my hair off before. I had very long hair in 2010, and I had cut my hair off right before I started chemo treatment because I didn't want the trauma of losing long, beautiful hair. But it still is very traumatic, even with my hair short, to lose it. But I did make the decision because, like I said, it's falling out in handfuls and it's falling out patchy to go ahead and shave my head, which, as you can imagine, you stand there one day and it's all gone. Every hair on your head is gone. And this is just where you are at that stage. And like I said, as a woman, it's very traumatic because you don't have hair. And then I also had this little port in my chest that had this line that was going into my neck that when I turned my head, you could see this big, huge plastic line that looked like a vein sticking out of my neck. I was feeding into my jugular. And when I shaved my head, it turned, I forgotten that I had a scar in the top of my scalp from years ago, I'd had a cyst removed. And so there's this hideous little crescent moon scar. And I just stared back in the mirror and just burst into tears because I didn't recognize me anymore. I was just this creature now and how heart-wrenching it was that this is where I am. This is where my life is. And there was no guarantee that I was even going to live. That's not even something that my doctors had promised me. Again, I'm 37 years old. The only thing my doctor would say to me is we're going to do our best. That's all I'm going to promise you is that we'll do our best. And that's kind of hard to hear. You want to be reassured that you're going to make it, but they can't give you that reassurance. Cancer is not one of those things where it's like, oh, if we just do X, Y, and Z, you'll absolutely live because that isn't the case. Cancer is very aggressive. And this tumor was at that time very aggressive. Now, fortunate for me, the chemotherapy 
was actually working. After my first chemo treatment within a few weeks, the tumor was starting to shrink and that was good. I was hoping that I would be able to cut short the chemo. They were absolutely not having that. So I still had to finish out all four treatments, but the tumor went from, like I said, about the size of a golf ball to about the size of a pea by the time it, they were ready to perform the lumpectomy. So I, at that point, I had had four rounds of chemotherapy. As you're going through chemotherapy, when you go in for blood tests, your, as I said, your veins collapse. They can no longer, all your arms are completely bruised. They cannot get blood out of your, in your arms anymore. They're down to doing the backs of your hands and your wrists, which are way more painful. But you're in constant pain. You're going through a lot of blood tests. For me, chemo also caused a lot of vomiting, a lot of diarrhea a lot of I was covered in sores all over my body I couldn't sleep at night from the pain from the new elastic shot that was making my bones hurt and what that starts to do to you mentally and emotionally is something I cannot begin to describe to you you are going through pure hell and part of you starts to really think that death cannot be as bad as what I'm going through. So yes, I will admit that there were times that I planned my memorial service. I planned my funeral. I had people that I wanted to do my eulogy. I had this all planned out in my head because there's no way that the human body could be put through this much torment and torture and survive. And at that point, you don't even want to survive. You just want it to end because there's no way that you can continue to go through this and suffering the way you are. And that was very, very hard for me but we did finally get the tumor small enough to be able to have my lumpectomy which was in april of that year of 2011 i had the lumpectomy done and they took out like i said about the size of a quarter was taken out of my right breast and again that was amazing considering that at one point they were going to remove my whole breast and we managed to get it down to where they only had to remove like a quarter size which didn't look noticeable at the time but you know years later obviously they look they, they're noticeably different in size about a cup size less on the right than there is on the left and after the lumpectomy I was hoping that everything was done that was when they actually declared me cancer free which I remember that day vividly um it's tattooed on my breast um April 16th 2011 that's everybody celebrates theirs um and that's like your your rebirth day because you get to be born again you get another chance to get to to live basically and after the lumpectomy we i had to go through radiation treatment and the doctor explained to me because i was kind of resistant to radiation but the doctor explained to me with your kind of cancer and how aggressive yours was if you don't go through radiation treatment the chance of your cancer returning is about 40 percent if you go through radiation treatment it drops to about 10 and in some cases as little as five percent of returning basically it's presented to you as yes it's optional but not really so it's in your best interest now as bad as chemo was was radiation worse no did i go through a lot of complications from radiation absolutely um you have to stay protected from the sun i did lose skin out of my actually my right breast burst open underneath which they said was kind of common for the size of my breasts i have larger breasts and i also had made the mistake of putting a band-aid in my armpit when it had burst open and i ended up losing all of the skin when they tried to get the band-aid off which they had warned me your skin is very sensitive at this time it'll basically slough off and it's that caused a lot of pain and radiation like i said is its own set of problems and its own set of nausea and and you're still fighting off what the chemo is doing as far as like how you feel every day there's a lot of fatigue a lot of nausea a lot of vomiting you just cannot get enough sleep i was probably sleeping upwards of 20 hours a day on my days off and let me explain when i say my days off understand that i did actually work 
through the entire process of cancer treatment, which is not uncommon for most people to do. And people that haven't had cancer don't understand, like, why would you work? Why wouldn't you take the time off? You're going to be sick and you're going to be vomiting. You're going to be this because staying home is much worse on you. It mentally, emotionally, spiritually, what cancer is doing to you is much worse emotionally and spiritually than anything else. Because all you can think about when you're home is your impending doom. So if you work, at least you're keeping yourself busy. You're out of the house. You're around co-workers. When your friends ask you out you, and when you're filling up to it, you go out and you try and you know, eat a couple bites of food or something, because the idea is don't stay in the house. Don't stay just there, not around people, because that will give you too much time to think of your your imminent death. And so you stay busy and you stay working. And that's what I did was I stay busy and uh, God bless my coworkers at that time that were so patient with me, so understanding, who donated so much of their own personal sick leave and, and paid time off in order for me to finish treatment without having to give up all of my vacation time, which I really appreciated. They didn't have to do that. That was something that they went to the president of the company and told them we want to donate time so she doesn't have to lose any time off. And, you know, and she'll still get paid while she's going through treatment, which I appreciated them for all of that. And then when I was in the office, they were very careful about coming around me, especially if they weren't feeling well. They knew that I was in compromised health. And so they were very careful about not coming around. And then I had coworkers that on times when I was feeling sick and needed to go and be sick in the bathroom, had no problem just coming and sitting there and just waiting till I stopped being sick, which take upwards of 45 minutes sometimes. And we were very patient, didn't care that I slept in the office, would come and make sure that during my lunch break when I had to take naps, they would come and get me and you know wake me back up. It seems like a lot, but these people were tremendous and I'm I'm always going to be thankful for all of them that were there for me and very supportive at the time, along with my family who cooked meals and my dad, God bless him, who came to every chemo treatment, which was amazing because he had to sit there for four and a half hours and basically watch his youngest daughter be poisoned. And yet he sat there and he never complained and he made jokes. And my nurses loved him because he could make people laugh. And, and I appreciate him because I originally, I didn't want anybody to be with me. I wanted to go through it by myself. And now looking back, I'm very thankful that he had been there because I don't know that I could have done it alone. And he helped make a very heart-wrenching experience a little bit better. As, as better as he could. And I found out many years later that he would go home and cry every night when we would leave chemo because it was so hard on him to watch what his daughter was going through. But when he was with me, he never cried in front of me. He was supportive and I appreciated that because I don't know if I could handle his tears with my tears. And so, yeah, I, I'm very thankful that my dad had been there at the time and helped me through that. I will tell you guys, there were things, however, that I did miss during treatment. You have to understand that when someone is diagnosed with cancer, people don't necessarily know how to respond to that. They don't know how to, I don't want to say they don't know how to act, but it's just like, how do I treat you? And so a lot of um, my friends and even some of my family, one of the things that I really struggled with was people didn't even want to touch me. And I'm not talking about like just sexually, obviously that was out the window during treatment, but even just hug me. There were people that would not even give me a hug 
there were friends who would not call me the whole time I was going through treatment. And I remember confronting one of my friends about this. I was like, why, why were you not calling me? And he said, I didn't know what to say to you. And I was like, just have a normal conversation. If I want to talk about it, I'll talk about it. But when I don't, I don't want to talk about it. Tell me how your family's doing, how your daughter's doing, how's life, how's work. Just have a normal conversation with me. Because in reality, people, all anybody going through a terminal illness wants is to just be treated normal. Just act like everything is okay because I want to believe everything is going to be okay. So tell me how your family is, how life is. Tell me your dreams. Tell me what you are doing this weekend. Because that's what I want to plan on is, you know, what am I going to be doing next weekend or this weekend or that weekend? While I'm going through treatment, I kept a cancer journal. It was a very private one, but I did share it with people to let people know what I was going through emotionally and the torture that you put yourself through emotionally at the time. But one of the things I did keep writing over and over again was that I wanted to finish college because I had had to stop with my associate's degree while I was battling cancer. And so I wanted to finish and I wanted to get my bachelor's degree. And my dream was to go work for NFL Network one day. God, how am I gonna do this? So insane. But yeah, that was what I kept writing over and over in, in my journal. It was something to give myself to look forward to other than stop thinking about your death and the fact that you may not make it to that drink. And so giving myself something to focus on helped me tremendously. It was like, no, we're not gonna stop here. We're not gonna die here. We got things to do. We got this college degree to finish. We got this dream job we gotta get. So you're gonna get through this. And it was writing that down in my journal and, and keep you know making myself focus on that, I think gave me the motivation to push me through. And I actually got through to the other side of it. Internally, I guess the most people ask me, you know, what were what do you go through internally? What has to change in you internally as you're battling this terminal illness? What are you feeling? And honestly, the person you are when you begin cancer treatment is not the person you are when you come out the other side. It can't be. You have to become stronger. You have to become braver. You have to believe in yourself in a way that you've never believed in yourself before. Even if you're afraid, I always tell people, I'm not fearless. I'm always afraid. I just do things anyway. So no matter how afraid I was to go through this treatment, no matter how terrified I was of my impending doom, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to keep going because the alternative was to die. And I wasn't ready to do that. I don't, I didn't want my story to end there. And so what changes in you internally is who you are fundamentally. Everything about you changes emotionally, mentally, spiritually, even physically, everything changes. Obviously you go through, like I said, you lose your hair, your nails turn black, you go through neuropathy, your teeth shift, you're sick all the time. Like like you lose weight, like a lot happens to you physically in that case. But also what happens is, is you learn to adjust to things. You adjust to, in my case, everything tasted like salt water. I was going through treatment, which was part of why I would get sick all the time. But you even learn to adjust to those things. You will learn to, you know, okay, I'll just have chicken broth or something to that effect. Something that it didn't matter that it tasted salty because it's salty chicken broth anyway. And even after treatment, certain things never return. I will be clear that chemotherapy takes approximately a year to three years to clear out of your body. And during that time, you still are very, very fatigued. You just never get enough sleep. You're just tired all the time. And other things start to return. Some things never do. The changes in my taste bud are still there. There are certain th foods that I can no longer eat. Uh, I cannot eat very sweet food. It just has this 
horrible, disgusting taste to me. And so I've had to, I've learned to eat dark chocolate, not milk chocolate anymore. The little things like that are the physical changes that you have to adjust to. My hair did grow back, but it's not the same long thick mange of hair anymore it's thinner it's not as curly as what it used to be it grew back black which it had never been before and so all of that was a little bit of adjustment oh and it started turning gray which it hadn't been at that time and now you know it, when it grew back it also had black but it also had little strands of silver in there but i keep my unlike a lot of people i don't dye my hair i prefer to keep my gray hairs because I live long enough to get gray hair. And that's something that I was proud of. So I keep my gray hairs to remind myself that there was a chance I wasn't gonna live long enough to see gray hairs grow on my head. And I did. So they're actually something I'm very proud of. So I do not dye my hair. When people say, you know, how long is the healing process? The healing process, as far as physical, like I said, it takes about a year to three years for chemo to clear your system. You can't donate blood, which every time there was a blood drive, I had to not be able to do that. I was a registered bone marrow donor, had to get off the list. And it was a lot of things that were a, a big change for me. But you guys, I did some remarkable things as well. So I finished treatment, full cancer treatment in June of 2011 and I actually quit my job and I decided to go back to school or to school I should say and I had gotten accepted to the University of Tennessee down in Knoxville Tennessee and as I said I lived in Washington DC at the time I did not have any friends or family down there but I just felt like I needed to get away not just you know because I wanted to get away from being a reminder of the hospital and being sick and everything but more because I needed to prove to myself that I was ready to move on and live this dream life of mine. And for me, yes, I could have gone to online college and yes, I could have gone to a local school, but this is something I felt like I needed to is this go and, and prove to myself that I could live somewhere else and, and still take care of myself and everything of that nature. So yeah, I packed my bags and I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, and I went to the University of Tennessee, which was an amazing experience. My doctors, of course, obviously weren't necessarily happy with me moving so far away, but I just had to take a chance on me. And I did get on, there was a state program for cancer survivors that allowed me to still get my mammograms and my annual exams for free. Thank you. At that time, I was biannual um, mammograms. I had to get them twice a year. So all of that was covered. Thankfully, as I'm a college student, I didn't have the money to be able to pay for that. So I was thankful for that down there in Tennessee. And December of 2013, I finished college. And this is again, like I said, this is after cancer that I was able to do that. And also, I still had that dream. Remember you guys, I told you, I dreamed of working for NFL Network one day. Well, 2014 was not a good year, pretty much just couch surfing for a year, looking for work. And then at the end of the year, in December of 2014, I got a call from NFL Network for a job starting in January of 2015 in Los Angeles. I had to move to LA for the job, but yeah, they had a job for me out in Los Angeles to work for NFL Network. So here I am, I'm, you know, a couple years removed from cancer treatment, and now I'm getting ready to go and get my dream job. Are you kidding me? So that was so incredible and so amazing and just getting the opportunity to live and to live out this dream that I had wrote in my cancer journal a thousand times over and over again. I'm gonna go work for NFL Network. I'm gonna go and, and then it happened. You guys, it happened. You know how amazing that is? And the fact that I survived long enough to be able to fulfill a dream that I had in my head and my heart, that's amazing to me. And you know, what changed most about me after treatment was me as a person. It's not any one thing. 
It's it's me as a person, me being, like I said, I quit my job and went to college. I became braver. I became willing to take risks, to take chances, to believe in myself in a way that I never had previously. You know, I'm willing to stand up for myself. I'm willing to take chances on things that I, I previously, I didn't have the courage or the capacity to do so. And now here I was like, no, I'm gonna do this. Whatever it takes, I'm gonna do it. So that brings me to, why did I make Survivor Girl? You guys, Survivor Girl is a character I created. She is obviously a, a cancer survivor. But she is a symbol of hope and she's a symbol of encouragement, of courage, of bravery. She is a character I created. I have been going to cancer walks every state that I've been in. When I was in Tennessee, I started in 2011, started doing cancer walks and I've gone every single year. The cancer walks, making strides for American Cancer Society and more than pink walk for Susan G. Coleman. So I do cancer walks. I've done them, like I said, in Tennessee, in Washington, D.C. and now here out in California in Los Angeles. I do these cancer walks because they mean something to me. And in 2019 is when I created the character of Survivor Girl. And Survivor Girl is in full costume. So if you ever get an opportunity, I hope you get to see me out in my full costume with her cape and her mask and her cancer survivor shoes and pants and everything. Yes, it's a full head to toe costume. It was partially because I have very bad anxiety and it was partially because I wanted to be a symbol of hope. I wanted to be a symbol of encouragement. I wanted to help people to understand that you can get to the other side because damn it, I did when I didn't believe that I would. And so that's why I created Survivor Girl, the character. And that is what motivated me to begin Survivor Girl, the podcast, because I wanted to continue to pass on my message of, of hope and encouragement, of love and guidance, of believing that you will make it no matter how hopeless it may seem. We don't lose our battle to cancer. It's how great you live your life and the things and the memories that you leave behind with people. That's what matters most in this world is all the good that you put back into the world. And that was the reason that I did these cancer walks. That's why I created Survivor Girl was to put the good back in the world and encourage the people who helped me along the way. Because there were a lot of cancer survivors that when I went to cancer walks, who when I was first there, I was only a year in and there was people like 10, 20, 30 years that I would go and hug because I just wanted to feel that energy of, wow, you can make it 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years past the diagnosis, past the terminal illness. And so now that I'm on the far side and I'm 12 years cancer free, I try to do the same thing for people that are just beginning their journey is there is hope on the other side. You just got to keep fighting and living your best life because that's what people will remember is the beauty that you put into the world. They won't remember the sickness if you put so much light and goodness in the world. And so that's what Survivor Girl is. So my final message to you guys, uh, what would I say to somebody that is new to being diagnosed with a terminal illness? I would tell you, never give up hope, never give up faith. Pray, believe in yourself, pray to whatever deity makes you comfortable. Hell, pray to yourself. You don't have to believe in a higher power that is up to you, but if you do, pray to your deity and then pray for healing and cling to your people, your family, your loved ones, whoever those people are and make you feel good. Cling to those people because they will help you get through. If you're the kind of person like me who always loves to give and give and give support and love and encouragement, this time is your time to accept it as well. It's okay to say, I need help. I need 
need someone to just hug me or hold me or be there, support me. I need help to get out this bed because I'm too weak to walk. I need help. And guess what? All those good people whose lives you touched along the way will come forward and help you. So be encouraged, be positive, keep a good heart, stay motivated, stay believing in yourself and just know that it does get better and you can live a tremendous life years after a terminal diagnosis. I am a living testament to that. I have 12 years cancer free and I will be back out at these cancer races in Los Angeles. I have four in October and I look forward to all of them to be out there. I look forward to bringing on more survivors to share their stories with you guys. So I thank you guys for listening and I look forward to sharing more stories of beautiful, wonderful, incredible, amazing, inspirational people who have also faced their own mortality and lived to tell the tale. So thank you guys for listening and we'll see you here again next time. Thank you.